and welcome to another episode of Just Plain Sense with me, Christine Burns. In this episode, how do you reconcile a conflict between someone's right to their religion and beliefs and the rights of others? The increased level of legal entitlements and protections in Britain over the last few years has provided many people in our society with the tools to be able to insist on fair and equal treatment and to live their lives without the fear of harassment or violence. There's hardly anyone left these days whose right to live in their own way is not covered in some shape or form. For women, there's been substantial legislation dealing with discrimination in work, training and the supply of services, the right to equal pay, protections during pregnancy, and of course, rights to contraception, fertility treatment and abortion. There's now also a positive duty on public bodies to promote gender equality. Other Acts of Parliament and regulations have outlawed discrimination on grounds of race, disability, age and sexual orientation. In some of these instances, hate crimes are also specifically dealt with, and there are positive duties for public bodies relating to race and disability. The right to thought, conscience and religion is also protected, along with the right to change one's religion and to manifest one's religion or beliefs. These last protections are along the lines required by Article 9 of the European Convention on Human Rights. And rights to religion or belief are not just reflected in direct form, but also indirectly through the special exemptions that have been written into the laws protecting other groups. This means, for instance, that recent laws protecting gay and lesbian people's rights have included clauses that modify those protections in certain situations, such as applying for teaching posts in faith schools. Looking a little further back, the Abortion Act specifically allowed for the exercise of religious conscience by clinicians. Abortion is actually the only instance where clinicians are permitted to opt out of treating someone. It's important to stress that the concession doesn't apply in any other instance for doctors. Also, even in this case, doctors have to ensure that patients they don't want to support are helped to find another doctor who will treat them. I'm talking about these kinds of exceptions, though, because they illustrate the sorts of ways in which people's religious sensibilities can come into conflict with other people's rights, and how we then have to find ways to broker that conflict fairly. This is important because it's conceivable that a conflict might arise between an individual's religion or beliefs and just about every form of legislated protection for individual rights. The examples I've given relate specifically to women's rights and lesbian, gay or bisexual people. But it's also possible to have faith-based conflicts relating to people's colour or ethnic background, their age, a disability or even someone else's religion. Whatever the circumstances, people need to be prepared to deal with these potential conflicts of rights in a consistent, firm and confident manner. The first thing is to clarify whether the circumstances in question really do arise from a firmly held religious teaching or belief, or whether they're just an instance of someone expressing a discriminatory attitude. In other words, just because someone behaves in a particular way and cites their faith as a justification, that doesn't necessarily mean they have a valid point. To find out whether they do or not may mean that you need to enlist an impartial and informed source to consult with for advice. Let's assume that the issue does involve an important issue for one or other person's religion, though. How do you weigh one set of rights against another? Well, I think that an easy way to sum up the position is that whilst we all have rights, nobody has any form of legalised mandate to disadvantage others in order to enjoy their own protection. 
This idea has been embodied into the European Convention on Human Rights since these principles were drafted and endorsed almost 60 years ago. The same concepts are part of the Human Rights Act too. Some rights are considered to be unqualified. That means nothing can water down the principles involved. A good example is the provision which says that no one shall be subjected to torture or to inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. That's Article 3. Other rights are referred to as so-called qualified rights, however. That means that they must be balanced against other competing rights. A good example of a qualified right is the second part of the provisions dealing with religion or belief, Article 9. The first part of Article 9 is unqualified. In other words, the principle is not negotiable. It says, everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion. It goes on to say, this right includes the freedom for a person to change their religion or belief. It also says that people have the freedom, either alone or in community with others, in public or in private, to manifest their religion or belief in worship, in teaching, practice and observance. Now the intention, of course, was to rule out the situations that have occurred throughout history, where people have been persecuted for their beliefs. It's also about protecting people so they can believe and worship without fear. Unfortunately, the last part, about the freedom to manifest a religion, is open to misunderstanding, though. For instance, if your religion says you must go out and attack people who don't worship your God, or disregard what society regards as women's equal rights, then that's going to lead to a conflict with other people's rights. The second part of Article 9 comes with a qualification designed to anticipate this, though. It says, freedom to manifest one's religion or beliefs shall be subject only to such limitations as are prescribed by law and are necessary in a democratic society in the interests of public safety, for the protection of public order, health or morals, or for the protection of the rights and freedom of others. I'll repeat that last phrase, for the protection of the rights and freedoms of others. So it's clear that we can only accommodate the requirements and beliefs associated with membership of a particular religion to the extent that this does not impinge on someone else's rights. How this can be done depends on the circumstances, and this is where the idea of proportionality comes in. Proportionality is about deciding the degree to which society should be prepared to concede some aspects of the provisions made for the majority in order to accommodate the needs of a minority. It's not measured by numbers, though. Otherwise, the majority would never have to concede anything. It's a measure of the importance of the need for the concession and the degree to which society can reasonably live with it. The example I gave earlier from the Abortion Act is a case in point. The path between two opposed positions in this case was to find a way that clinicians could remain true to their genuine religious convictions while society ensures that all women can still access information and services to do with terminating a pregnancy. The law doesn't explicitly tell us what to do in every day-to-day -day case that may arise, of course. However, the same principles can be applied in arbitrating disputes wherever they arise. In other words, if the core issue is about whether someone has the right to be a member of a particular religion or to carry out acts of worship, then there shouldn't be much issue. That's their right, and it's no great inconvenience to any of us to accommodate that. The commonest example is providing prayer facilities that are accessible in the workplace. Similarly, if someone or something is discriminatory towards a person's religion, then the law is clear that that is wrong. 
Difficulties only tend to arise when the issues move from an individual's passive observance of their religion to an active status. That's when you may then find that their actions begin to impinge on others. However, as I've illustrated, finding the way in which to broker a reasonable and proportionate compromise has to be done on the facts of each individual case. Unless the law has already explicitly stated how a concession should be made, then there's no easy rule of thumb. All I'll say is this. The challenge in a multicultural society is to be able to live together in harmony in spite of the fact that we all have such different backgrounds and beliefs. The law reminds us that rights are a shield to defend us, not a cudgel to impose ourselves on others.